starting at verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. title for the message this morning is humility before the heavy hand of God. That term heavy hand is very interesting and we'll talk about it in a second, but I want you to just kind of put your memory back in where we are in first Samuel. This is something of an interlude in some ways, but really it does advance the overall narrative of first Samuel very well. Of course it does. It's God's word, right? But whereas we've been talking about Samuel and his family and Eli and his family, and last week as Nathan preached from 1 Samuel chapter 4 about the death of Eli and the birth of Eli's grandson, Ichabod, do you remember what Ichabod means? What was it? Where is the glory? Exactly. Very good, Carson. Where is the glory? This question sort of echoes throughout the whole of this, what we call the arc narrative in 1 Samuel. Where is the glory? And the answer, first and foremost, is it's no longer with God's people. The ark representing the glory, the presence, the power, the promise of God is now taken by the Philistines, who believe that because they've defeated Israel, that their god, Dagon, has also defeated the god of Israel as well. And if you were paying attention to the passage, you know clearly that God sent a message to that very idea through his interaction with the idol, Dagon, in his temple. But in the the title of this message this morning, I wanted to include the heavy hand of God, and it didn't fit in the PowerPoint, but it is still part of the title as far as I'm concerned, because this idea of the heavy hand of God is something that I think we sort of lost track of in 2023, 
We don't too much talk about God's wrath. Maybe we do when we talk about Christ enduring it for us. But I would say that be it even on a Palm Sunday or any other Sunday of the rest of the year, the wrath or the heavy hand of God is not something we handle too much in God's word. So what does the heavy hand of God mean? When you hear that term, heavy-handedness, perhaps you think about the common definition, something that's done in an unnecessarily forceful way without considering the feelings of others. Is that kind of what comes to your mind when you think of heavy-handedness? Maybe there's a person that comes to your mind, somebody who was very heavy-handed. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach or a boss. Maybe it was a relative. Maybe it was a neighbor. This morning, I was struck with the memory of an old book and movie in the 90s called Matilda, written by Roald Dahl. And Matilda is a really great story about this girl who goes to a new school that is run by a heavy-handed principal. Not called Miss Trunchbull, but The Trunchbull. That's how the students referred to her. Roald Dahl, in his excellent description of this principal, says she was a gigantic, holy terror. A fierce, tyrannical monster who frightened the life of the pupils and teachers alike. There was an aura of menace about her, even at a distance. 90s kids, do you remember the movie very well? Yeah. I mean, you you can picture this character, the actress, playing this role so flawlessly. But listen again to some of these words that are used to describe and, and connect this idea to how perhaps we misperceive God in some ways. Roald Dahl says that she was a gigantic, holy terror. Do you consider holiness in line with heavy-handedness or with, with, uh, with wrath or with um, fear or terror? Does the holiness of God cause fear in your heart? And is that right? Is it accurate? Is it a healthy response to who God is? Certainly, if we take the whole of this description of the trunchbull here and apply it to God, we are grossly mistaken. God is not tyrannical. God's desire is not immediately to cause fear and wrath in the hearts of people. The Puritans actually described the wrath of God, I've said this before, as his strange work. That is, that we see so many times in the Old Testament, first of all, the description of God as one being slow to anger and rich in what, church? Mercy. Patient. Gracious. These things are true. And when we come to the Philistines acquiring the ark, and from chapter 5, you can tell how they would get a very trunchbull picture of God. I've been asking myself this week, are they correct in that? Or have they missed something? Are they missing some important information? And I think we would say, as worshipers of Christ, yes, that they are missing in the midst of his wrath and anger and holiness and glory, the grace, the mercy, the kindness, and the patience of God. And yet that's not far from the passage that we've looked at here. 
Again, the definition of heavy-handedness that we said earlier was something done in an unnecessarily forceful way without considering the feelings of others. But when we look at the biblical idea of heavy-handedness, what we see is this word that describes action and power. An interesting thing for a Palm Sunday sermon. Again, the image of Jesus riding into town on a donkey, lowly and humble as Zechariah 9.9 describes him. One who, by his very word, holds the universe together, comes to us in humility. In some ways, this was the beginning of the experience of the Philistines. God allowed the ark to be picked up by pagans who had no idea how to handle the ark and take it back and set it where? In the town square, in somebody's basement. And, no, in the temple of a rival god. Now, Dagon, one thing I want you to know about Dagon was that he was a borrowed god for the Philistines. Just kind of funny. Seems like maybe that's what they want to do with the ark here too. Maybe we'll borrow the god of Israel as well and see if we can put these two gods together. Maybe we can get even more victory now that we have a god who is subservient to us. And yet God's intention is to humble them before himself, before the undefeated God. Yes, you've defeated the people of God, but you have not defeated God himself. And that he will make plain, as we saw clearly in the text. As he sat, as the ark sat there overnight in the temple of Dagon, it's important for us to recognize that Dagon would not have been a, an idol, like a wooden statue or a stone statue that was sit on a flimsy stand. This idol would have been set up properly and securely. You don't have your idols fall over randomly in a temple. That's not a thing. You have people who are in charge of making sure that the the temple of Dagon is as it should be. And yet, they wake up the next morning to find Dagon face down before the Ark of God. The undefeated one. Interestingly enough, their response is incorrect. What do they do? They go in, they find Dagon face down, and truly the funniest part, the humor of this passage is in this very word that they set him back up as if he needed to be set back up because he did, because he's an idol. But in their service to Dagon to say, oh, poor Dagon, get back where you are, big guy. You're fine. They are ironically acting in a way that is accurate with a fake God, but with the motivation of respecting and honoring him instead. It's fascinating. God's call to the Philistines, God's call to us this morning to humble ourselves before the undefeated God was shown in this passage in three different ways. First and foremost, to Dagon, that rival God. The humbling of the God of the Philistines was in the action of dethroning Dagon. But it didn't stop there. Because whereas that first warning shot, if you will, was given of Dagon falling face down before the ark of God in deference, in reverence, in recognition of who the true God is, rather than taking that as a sign to say, we need to think a little bit more about who this God is of whom we have his ark in our false God's temple. Rather than doing that, they set him back up. The second night happens, he falls down in the same way 
But what's different? He's decapitated. He's disarmed. And again, well, I guess there are kind of two funny lines in this passage. Only the trunk of Dagon was left of him. I mean, he was a tree, tree trunk at this point. That was it. There was nothing godly about him anymore. There was no deity left because the most defining, deifying things about this piece of wood were his hands and his head that were carved by a human. The false god is dethroned, his hands and head removed. This god cannot think, this god cannot act. What comes next? The humbling of the lords of the Philistines, the leaders. God's way of humbling them is through confusion. You can see that in verses 7 through 9. That they called the lords together, they didn't know what to do. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it, to us? We're able to read this objectively outside of time and space. In the moment, though, can you imagine being the lords of the Philistines, meeting in your normal council meeting, somebody bursts in and says, Dagon's been decapitated. Uh, we don't know what to do. Dagon, what? Who, who could have done this? Well, the, the temple was locked, especially after the first night. We thought maybe somebody went in and knocked him over. So we locked it. We set a guard. We made sure it was safe and secure. And the next morning we come in and he's got no head. He's got no hands. There's confusion here. Why? Because in God's act of humbling them before the undefeated God, they're realizing the effect of not knowing this God. That's the lords of the Philistines, met with confusion and their humiliation. Thirdly, the humbling of the cities of the Philistines happened. Now, this happens in a more dramatic and terrifying and broadly destructive way because it is the cities of the Philistines, as they play hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant, going from city to city, each city suffers plagues and panic. These plagues were in the form of tumors that were growing on the men, um, there, we'll see in next week in chapter 6, Lord willing, that there was a thought that perhaps there was a plague of mice that could have caused this, but surely we know from outside of this story that this is God's doing here. This was not a coincidence that the Philistines were suffering while the ark was there. The cities are humbled. Verse 12, in a very ominous and really tragic cliffhanger for this chapter, we see the cry of the city went up to heaven. It did not go up to heaven in an attitude of humility and reverence to who the true God is. What the author is saying here is that the cry was so loud. It was a loud cry. No one in there was just kind of like, oh man, this has been a rough day. Their city is in turmoil and terror over these things because there is a lack of humility. St. Augustine, from the third century of the church, wrote that if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. He continues, if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. I think that's putting it lightly in the context of our Philistine passage where the fruitlessness is truly destruction and terror and panic. The undefeated God will not bow to anyone. He makes that clear with Dagon. He makes it clear that the wisdom of the leaders will not confound God's plans, his holiness, his glory. 
And he makes it clear that the cities that would reject him and treat him as a trophy of war will be faced with panic and plague. Humility is required. Humility is required in order to approach God, in order to know God, in order to continue in a relationship with him as well. Augustine is correct. The first thing in the Christian life is humility, as is the second and the third. And this is a challenge for us because the opposite of humility is so much more accessible. I don't think any of us would like to come in here and raise our hands and say, yes, I have a very proud heart. Kind of reminds me in the Chronicles of Narnia of the mouse soldier Reepicheep, who upon the end of the battle had lost his tail and has it restored to him by Aslan. And he declares that this tale will ever be to him a sign of his huge humility. Right after talking about how the tail of a mouse is his pride. It's ironic. It it, it reflects in us our inability to really understand what humility and pride are on a spiritual level and from a divine perspective. Our problem is that a proud heart before God is going to lead to idolatry. Idolatry is that in the beginning of this passage with the Philistines, and they say, hey, look, we're going to make God into our own likeness, into our own image, into our own plans. We're going to set him up with the other God that we invented. And for the Philistines, actually, not even that they invented, that they borrowed from another country. Kind of ironic. We've talked about the humor of this conversation between the council trying to decide what to do with Dagon and how that humor so quickly turns to horror the fallout of it. But notice some of the proud actions of the Philistines in here. In the beginning, we see two verses. The Philistines captured the ark of God. Then they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they took the ark of God and brought it into the house. Do you see how the language in here is talking so much about the Philistines controlling God? Let's remember here that the ark is not meant to be an image of who God is. It is meant to be a representation of his presence, of his power, and his promise. It acts in some ways as a throne for God. God is not one whom we can see with physical eyes. Apart from that as well, in God's original design in Genesis, he said specifically of Adam and Eve in creating them, let us make man and woman in our what? Image. There already is an image bearer of God on this world. Unfortunately, it is stained by pride. So we see in the Philistines, the taking and the bringing and the taking and the capturing and the bringing of the ark. Their celebration of victory. We thought we were going to lose. We know what happened in Egypt during the Exodus. Egypt suffered greatly under this God, but we have conquered. You not hear the sort of modern humanistic pride of our generation today in this. Really, it brings me back even er, earlier than our generation to Friedrich Nietzsche's famous quote in 1882. He wrote in his book, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. Pride led them to believe differently or wrongly about God, that is the Philistines. And Friedrich, in his expression of the death of God, has seen that his philosophical viewpoint has cut through whatever biblical worldviews he was afraid of or worried about. And he, is li- he lived under the delusion 
that God could be defeated and that he and the culture at the time had killed him. This is the gospel of the secular mind, church. The good news that God is dead. Isn't it ironic during Easter time that we are thinking about this gospel of the death of God when we celebrate the death of God that is not the end, but rather that it is the leading to the resurrection of God the Son himself. That's what's so ironic and tragic is that a conclusion can be reached that God has been defeated and killed and that they can come really so close to something that God does want to communicate to us in his word. That is the humbling of Jesus Christ. His humble attitude that brought him into Jerusalem on a donkey. His humble attitude that in the beginning made him take on flesh and dwell among us in the first place. Pride leads to idolatry. Pride leads us to a wrong understanding of who God is. It results in confusion like the Philistine lords. It results in panic and plague like the rest of the cities. It's so easy to see in our culture. It's so easy to point fingers and go, y'all just love Nietzsche's saying, don't you? But I wonder, church, if there's a bigger issue within our four walls, within the walls of our own hearts, That the notion that God could perhaps be dead, inactive, and no longer participating in my plans, in my power, in my promises that I've made to myself, my own glory being the end goal, if I could get God out of the way, those things are much more easily accessible. And I would not put it past us that as the American church, as the church globally, that the poison of this viewpoint, of this worldview does seep into our hearts at times. That the pride that we take, that we think is so small, like like just simply saying like, yeah, I did a really good job in whatever that thing is that I did this past week and letting myself daydream about it a little bit and think on, yeah, I've I've really done a really excellent task here. I've, I've completed something, whatever it might be. Pride's biggest danger is that it doesn't come in and say, hey, I'm pride. Let me in. We're going to have a great party. Pride comes in in subtle, simple ways. It comes in through genuine compliments of other people. It comes in when people say, hey, I really enjoyed that sermon. I really thought you did a good job with this or those things. You're a really great parent. Those compliments, we take them in. Do you know you have to funnel almost everything you hear through the mind of Christ? Because it is so easy to distort those things and to attach them to our hearts in such a way that we identify ourselves as sufficient without him. It doesn't happen overnight but it continues overnight. It continues to grow if we do not deal with it. We can find confusion in that then when we see the world around us not going the way we think it should. Confusion when we come to God's word and we don't understand. Why is it that we read from James today? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I've already done that. I'm I'm, I'm good on those things. Do you realize that the attitude that says I no longer need the gospel is a proud attitude? Even if it's rooted in the sense of saying, I believed the gospel already when I was a teenager and I went up front and I got baptized and I did all those things. I don't need that anymore. I need that next thing that God has for you. Church, Christ is the next thing. He's the only thing. A proud heart leads to idolatry before God. It it, it leads to distorting who God is and then turning it into a transactional relationship. I'm going to do these things for God and he's going to do these things for me. That is pride, church. 
That is not just a matter of misunderstanding God. It's a poison in our hearts that makes us act contrary to the character of God. It may even be that this kind of pride seeps in and leads us to act out with our own heavy hand. And that we, being unjust and being separate from the Holy One, are more like the trench bull than we are the Holy God who can rightly dish out his wrath and justice whenever he so pleases. You know, it's an amazing thing. Again, we read these kinds of passages. You read the book of Joshua and the destruction of the enemies of God. And, and so easily we just go to saying, like, boy, God is just, why, why is he so cruel? Why is he so wrathful? It would be a good exercise for us someday to count the amounts of stories where we see God's patience versus the times we see God's wrath. And you will see, church, I promise you, that there are greater expressions of his patience, of his kindness, of his grace than his wrath. Because if we get those things backwards, then pride would come in and tell us, you know, I would be better at this whole God thing than he is. I think I would leave out, I think I would have been kind to the Philistines. You know, what's fascinating is that if we were to take the evangelistic approach and say, boy, God, you sure missed the opportunity here. You could have started a revival in Philistia. You could have appeared, preached good news, and all those kind of things. Church, if, if people do not respond in humility to the wrath of God, do you think they will respond in humility to his grace? They won't. We won't. And that is why in our gospel presentation, we cannot just simply say, hey, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you'll trust him, everything's going to go smoothly and swimmingly. And, and you should really come to church on Sunday morning, but that's really all we ask of you. The gospel is that we are proud sinners who need to cleanse our proud hands of our own efforts lest they be chopped off like Dagon. Pride itself is led in by means of idolatrous thinking. It leads to idolatrous thinking. It leads us to believe we can manipulate God in some way. It leads us to believe things like God is dead. Church, wherever you let pride in your hearts, you need to recognize that it will spread to all areas of your lives before you know it. If pride is simply a matter of thing that you enjoy on your way home from work from 5 o'clock to 5.15, and then you say, okay, I'm going to take my proud hat off and I'm going to be a humble husband and father now and all those things, you're not going to. Not if you've made that space already. Not if you've allowed some corner of your life to enjoy your own accomplishment. It's going to seep into everything else. And it's going to express itself in relationships. It's going to put other people down. It's going to do more harm than you can even imagine. The Bible is so pointedly driven to deal with the issues of our hearts, not as they are expressed outwardly, but first what they are inwardly, to get to the root, the kind of gardening that nobody really wants to do was why I hated my mom telling me that I needed to go pull weeds. It's because I knew I'm going to go grab all the leaves and I'm not going to get under that dirt. I'm going to do it as quick as I can, but guess what happens? Weeds grow back. And this is what pride is. Pride is not going to let us go. Pride is going to continue. It's going to progress. It's going to grow. And truly, apart from God's work, we can do nothing at all. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Are you lowly in spirit this morning? And if you sense that you're not, 
Don't have the pride that says that you can bring yourself low. Don't have the pride that says, okay, God, I'm recognizing that I'm not as humble as I ought to be. Let me go ahead and figure that out on my own here. It is God whom we need to humble us. And he does that in two very different ways. Obviously, we're talking in 1 Samuel 5 about his expression of wrath and judgment that brings humility or that is designed to bring humility. And I, I would say in the end of verse 12 here, this cry out to the, the cry out of the city to heaven was not a cry for humility and salvation, but just anguish over the decisions and that fallout of what they had decided to do. Rather, we need the humble one to come and take the heavy hand of God in our place to take the wrath and justice that we deserve to be poured out on us. Philistia was brought low, and the cries went up high. But were they designed to reach the ears of a merciful God? I would say no, because they didn't know him. They didn't know him to be a merciful God. And so, in one sense, we say, I understand why some people think that God is just wrathful, because the only Bible story they ever read was Jericho, where God said, go in and kill everybody, Right? knowing God, coming to the fullness of his word, coming to the holiness of who he is, we see that actually what we deserve is far worse than Jericho, far worse than the Philistines received. And when we come to the cross, we see most clearly what we deserved. That Christ, the truly only humble one, took the heavy hand of God for us. Today, it is important for us, church, to understand that the means of humbling for the lost are the same as the means of humbling the saint. It is to look to the one who endured the heavy hand of judgment for us. Nowhere else. To look to Christ, to give him the glory for what he has done. To not come with our hands full and saying, all right, Lord, I brought a bunch of stuff. I thought this was pretty good. Maybe there's some things we can take. Maybe there's some things we can leave. To come to the cross empty-handed, just as you are every day. Matthew eleven twenty nine, in thinking about Palm Sunday and the humility of Christ, there's perhaps no better passage than Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart." Just like that Proverbs twenty nine twenty three passage said, "You will find rest for your souls." This is what Christ offers the sinner who deserves wrath. Instead, he says, I will take that wrath. I have come in riding lowly on a donkey to take the humiliation that my people deserve. The capture of the ark and the crucifixion of Christ are very interestingly related here because ultimately, did they truly capture the ark? No. And ultimately, did the Romans truly crucify Christ? No. He, well, yes, they crucified him. He, he died, absolutely. But did they kill him? Is he dead today? No, he's risen again. There may be idolatry in our hearts, but God's design in Christ is to give us grace. God's design is for us to see, yes, what we truly deserve, and yet he gives us grace. To take the things like, like, like those false ideas that we have in our minds, like if I work my hardest, if I can punish myself the right way, if I can just show people how serious I am about my Christian life, take all those things away. Take all your efforts away, all those things, and simply rest in the work of Christ. That takes serious humbling. And it sounds easier than it actually is. For us to truly acknowledge that all of our spiritual accomplishments, all the things that we've done that we think are right and good in this world, 
We need to agree with the Apostle Paul who says, I count all those things as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. The Philistines did not know him. We have an opportunity to know him today. So, in Christ-like humility, would you know this holy God of glory? And would you worship him in light of that? There's a temptation for us to do what the Philistines did in response to Dagon. He fell over, he lost his head in his hands, and then the author tells us that to this day, at the time of the writing, that they still, the priests of Dagon, would not step on the threshold. Why? Because they wanted to honor their fallen God. If your God has fallen, if your God is defeated, why worship him? Why do you return to those idols of pride in your heart? They're defeated. They're things that are left behind. Be encouraged, church, that that is God's message to us, to not honor the thresholds of our past idolatry, but rather in humility, in Christ-like humility, to press on to know and to worship the true God. Knowing him then will necessarily bring Christ-likeness. It will bring the humility. It will bring the lowly spirit. It will give us the means to battle our pride. It might be necessary for us to humble ourselves as we face trials even. Things that are outside of ourselves, we say, Lord, I've not brought this in. This is something outside of me that's going on. I've not done anything wrong in this. That might be the case. And it might be the case that God's even using these things that you haven't brought on yourself to bring about humility in your own heart. So let's make a humility test out of what Augustine said. Again, if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. I decided not to try to improve on a church father, but to maybe expand, as it were, as he said that the first three things of the Christian life are humility, humility, and humility. I thought perhaps we could take each of those exact same words and make them different. Is humility your aim in the Christian life? Is humility your attitude in the Christian life? And is humility evident in your actions in your Christian life? Aim, attitude, actions. Your aim, your purpose, your goals, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, all those kinds of things. Have they been not just tempered by or affected by humility, but are they growing out of humility before Christ? Your attitude, the way people interact with you, they talk, your your thoughts, all those kinds of things that make up who you really are. Is that grounded and growing out of humility? And your actions, of course, should be pretty obvious. There are some things that we do that are just simple expressions of pride. Are we seeing that in Christ, our actions model the humility of him? That's the test for you this morning. Check your aim, check your attitude, check your actions. Is humility there? Is it the purpose? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the humility of Christ who, being equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point, even to death, even to death on the cross. And you, Lord, have given him the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.